Please stand for the reading of God's Word. The scripture passage for this morning is from Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. Hear the word of the Lord. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, as we make our way slowly through any book of the Bible, which it's tend to, it's how we roll here at Grace Church. We make our way methodically and slowly through books of the of the Bible over the course of time. But it's it's good every now and then to kind of sit, you know, step back and and remind ourselves of the point. What is it that Paul, in this case, the author of Galatians, is really wanting to make sure people get? And his point, the the main argument in Galatians, the one thing that he wants to make sure that people get is this. You don't have to add anything to your walk with God in order to be right with him. You don't have to add anything to your walk with God in order to be right with him. He had to write this letter to Christians that were in the southern region of of Galatia in the first half of the first century because some false teachers had infiltrated that church and were teaching that they did have to add something to their walk with God in order to be right with him. They needed to keep the Jewish law. In, In effect, they had to become Jewish in order to be saved. And Paul wrote Galatians to say no. There's nothing you need to add to your walk with God in order to be right with him. You were justified. You were declared not guilty, declared right in God's sight through faith in Christ. You continue in the Christian life by faith in Christ. You were gifted with the Spirit of God, and, and, and by Him you were given eyes to see and, and, and faith to believe that Jesus is your Savior, the one who died for you. You continue in the Christian life through the Spirit of God, keeping in step with the Spirit, bearing the fruit of the Spirit. But, Paul said, you're not adding anything You are entirely forgiven and accepted through faith in Jesus Christ. You don't have to add anything to your walk with God in order to be right with him. So that's the message, you know, that's the reminder from 10,000 feet as we, you know, kind of step back and look at Galatians as a whole. Now, they got this letter in the first half of the first century. We're here reading it in the first half of the 21st century. What, What do we do with this? How does this apply to us? And I think the key to answering that question is by each of us asking ourselves a two part question. The first part of the question is, what is my highest good? What is my highest good? And then the second part of that question is, what am I relying on in order to obtain it? 
What is my highest good? What am I living for? And what am I relying on in order to obtain it? For those Christians to whom Paul was writing, their highest good was their salvation. They longed to hear that well done, good and faithful servant on the last day. They wanted to be accepted by God. That was their highest good. They were falling prey to the lie that they had to add good works. They had to rely on their obedience to the law in order to get their highest good, in order to be accepted by him. But what's your highest good? And what are you relying on in order to obtain it? For some of you, your highest good has nothing to do with God. You're not a follower of Jesus Christ. And so you're understandably living for something else because we're all living for something. And so what is your highest good? Maybe it's success at work or, or significance in the eyes of others. Or if you're, I want to say if you're a student being in the in crowd, but those of us who are adults know that that, you know, isn't something that we so easily escape, right? Or it's comfort or it's control or it's power or, or whatever the case may be. There's some thing that we're living for, some highest good, and we're relying on something else, you know, being in the right firm, uh, having the right spouse, um, living in the right neighborhood, uh, whatever the case may be, getting into the right school. We're relying on these works, these laws that we've written, these codes that maybe society gives us, that if you do these things, you will obtain that highest good that you seek. Now, many of us here this morning are Christians. We are followers of Jesus Christ. But for some of you, even though you know that God should be your highest good, that being accepted by him should be the thing that you're living for and, if you understand the gospel, resting in, in reality, what you're living for is something that's much more like those who aren't believers than, than those who are Christian Believers, Your highest good doesn't look that much different than it did before you became a Christian. You're still living for success or, or significance or comfort or, or power or control or whatever the case may be. And you're relying on codes that you've written or codes that the society has given us in order to obtain something that functionally is your highest good. Yes, you've trusted in Jesus Christ for your salvation, but in a way, you're living as though the gospel is for later. Like, I believe in Jesus so I can know I'll go to heaven when I die. In the meantime, what I'm really living for, if you open up my heart and, and discern there what its sole focus is functionally at any given moment, it's more inclined toward things this, that falls so much shorter than what Jesus offers us. Acceptance by God, being declared just in his sight, being adopted into the family of God. We who were orphans rightly under his wrath, receiving his blessing as those who are eternally secure. Oh, we so often live for less than that, even though we name the name of Christ. And then and there are those among us as Christians who, like the Church in Galatia, like these believers, do have as your greatest good that well done, good and faithful servant that we long to hear from Jesus. And yet, like the Galatians, we too are tempted to look to our religious 
performance, to rely on laws that, that maybe tradition or our own hearts want to create. If, I, if I'm in church every Sunday, if I am faithful be reading my Bible, if I, if I spend enough time in prayer, all things that are good, but look to not for what they're given, by, for, you know, given to us by God to be, which is means by which we experience more of the grace that's already ours in Christ, rather than looking to those good things to enjoy what God is already giving us, instead we look to those things and rely on them in order to achieve the unachievable, in order to merit that which has already been merited for us by Jesus Christ. And into all that, and before us today, especially in this passage, Paul holds up the cross. He holds up the cross of Jesus Christ because the cross shows us what's worth living for. The cross reminds us what must be our highest good. And the cross, with, with music that ought to be ringing in our ears, reminds us that we don't have to rely on anything in us to obtain what God offers us in Christ. So there's three things that we're going to look at briefly in this passage. First, the inescapability of the curse. The inescapability of of the curse. Second, the pathway to the blessing. The pathway to the blessing. And then third, the kind of people that the cross creates. The inescapability of the curse, the pathway to the blessing, and the kind of people the cross creates. But first, let's pray. Father, as we come before you this morning, we do pray that you would open our eyes. Lord, help us to behold wonderful things from this, your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So first, the inescapability of the curse. There are three things that Paul tells us in the first three verses, verses 10, 11, and 12, about the inescapability of the curse of the law. First, he tells us in verse 10, we are all under it. We are all under the curse. Take a look at verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now that quote that he references there is pulled from Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26. Remember the context of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, Moses is with the children of the exile generation, so God, uh, Exodus generation. God has delivered his people from bondage in Egypt. They're wandering in the desert for 40 years because those who were the adults of the Exodus failed to trust God and enter the land of Canaan. And so God said, you're all going to perish in the wilderness. 40 years they wandered. Until the last of them died off, with the exception of Moses, who was still to come. Moses is there on the edge of the promised land in Deuteronomy. And he's reiterating the law to the children of the Exodus generation who are now grown. And he gives them some instruction in Deuteronomy chapter 27. He says to them, when you go into the promised land, 
Jude, you know, Moses is like, I'm not going with you. God has said to me, I'm going to die here before going in. But when you go into the promised land, Joshua will lead you there. When you go into the promised land, you're going to find yourself in this valley between these two mountains, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And when you get there, I want six of the tribes to go up on Mount Gerizim, and I want six of the tribes to go up on Mount Ebal. And the ones who are up on Mount Gerizim, I want them to shout aloud the blessings of the covenant for those who obey the law. And the ones who are on Mount Ebal, I want them to shout aloud the curses of the covenant for those who fail to keep the law and everything in it. Now imagine yourself in that valley. Just this, I mean, cacophony of noise. You know, maybe you're discerning those words, and if you know your heart, you know the ones you're hearing most clearly. The ones coming down from Mount Ebal. The ones pronouncing the curse on those who fail to keep everything written in the law of God. And that's Paul's point in quoting that passage. No one can obey God's law. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the law and do them. Assumed because Paul knows his Old Testament, and I'll hit some verses here in a second, no one can keep God's law. And so therefore, consequently, first line in verse 10, all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Again, Paul knew his Old Testament. He knew 1 Kings 8.46, which says, There is no one who does not sin. Paul knew Proverbs 20, verse 9. Who can say, I have made my heart pure? I am clean from my sin. Paul knew Ecclesiastes 7.20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. The Old Testament says we're all sinners. And so Paul can take that teaching and say in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, anyone who seeks to live or to rely on obedience to the law for their standing with God are under the curse of the law. So that's the first thing he says. Secondly, he says in verse 11, if you rely on works of the law, you're actually off the right path. Take a look at verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Now, that's, that feels a little bit like a non sequitur, right? It, it feels like he should say, now it's evident that no one is justified by works of the law because everyone alike is under sin. Everybody's sinners. Everyone's a sinner. That's not what he says. The evidence that being justified before God is not by law-keeping is what the Bible says concerning the manner in which one is justified before God, and that's through faith. He, he quotes from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, to say God's path to blessing from the beginning, from within the Old Testament, is through faith. Of course, we saw that last week when we looked at the first part of Galatians chapter 3 and the way in which Paul brought out the argument from Abraham. From the very beginning of the people of God, salvation has been through faith and not by works. But then third, Paul's telling us in verse 12 that if you're relying on works of the law, you're living by an impossible principle. An impossible principle. Verse 12, let's read that together. 
But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. And there Paul is quoting from Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5. Again, drawing from the Old Testament to make his case. To these people who are being called to live according to the law found in the Old Testament, Paul says, okay, let's go back there so you can see just how wrong those false teachers are. And so here we are in verse 12, there's there's these two principles. There's the principle of law keeping, which is that of doing. It's a principle of doing. There's the principle of faith, which is a principle of believing. These two principles can't be reconciled with one another. Calvin put it this way, to be justified by our own merit and by the grace of another are irreconcilable. So you're either going to live or seek to live by the principle of law, which is the principle of doing, or you're going to seek to live by the principle of faith, which is that of believing. You have to choose one way or the other. The one leads to death. The other leads to life. Because we can't live up to the principle of the law. None of us can. So don't miss what Paul just did there. Just in those first you know, three verses of our text for this morning, drawing from those three passages from the Old Testament, he's not just showing, hey, everyone who seeks to live under the law or by the law are living under the curse. He's also showing us the gospel in the Old Testament. One story, right? He's taking us to the Old Testament to tell us that we're only saved by faith. First part of chapter three, looking at Abraham, Our verses for this morning, looking at the law and the prophets, salvation is by grace through faith. One story. So again, remember his point. Remember what Paul is saying, not only in chapter 3, but in the whole letters, all the letter of Galatians. He's saying, guys, those false teachers keep telling you that you need to obey the law in order to be accepted by God. The very law they're telling you they need to obey actually says you can't. Don't listen to them. Listen to me, Paul says. You are justified. You are accepted by God, loved by him because of what Christ did for you on the cross. There's nothing for you to add. Just keep walking. Just keep walking. Let's turn second to the pathway to the blessing. The pathway to the blessing is through the curse-bearing cross of Christ. The pathway to the blessing is through the curse-bearing cross of Christ. Christ is our substitute. This is one of the places from Scripture from which we draw the doctrine of the penal substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. Big words, glorious concept. At the heart of the diamond that is the gospel is the reality of the substitutionary work of Christ on the cross. He took what we deserve. Paul tells us, take a look at verses 13 and 14. This is such good news. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That word redeemed can also be translated ransomed. It's a, it's, it's a word from the marketplace in the first century. Everyone would have known what kind of 
point he was getting across. That, that word was used most often to describe the purchase price, or you could say the ransom price, of a slave. In the slave market, that was the price that was paid to acquire a slave. And the gospel tells us that the highest possible price was paid for we who were enslaved to our sin and rightly under God's curse. Jesus came and said in Mark chapter 20, Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. He is our substitute. He substituted for us. He stood in our place by becoming a curse for us. Paul quotes in verse 13 from Deuteronomy chapter 21 verse 23, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The, the apostles in the first century, the, the early church, they over and over emphasized because they were talking to a, a, specifically a Jewish audience at first. They had no uh, hesitancy to say Jesus was nailed to a tree. Jesus was crucified on a tree. They used tree language in order to reinforce to this Jewish audience, Jesus was under God's curse. That was a stumbling block for the Jews. How could God become man? How could God bear God's curse? How could I look to anyone bearing the curse of God as the one who would be my Savior? That's the wonder of the gospel. God did in Christ what we couldn't do for ourselves. The curse that we deserve, Jesus took in our place. That that curse might be exhausted, that the wrath might be consumed, that there would be nothing left over for those who look to Jesus Christ for their salvation except the blessings that are flowing down from Mount Gerizim. Jesus took the curses from Mount Ebal that we might have the blessings from Mount Gerizim. This is what it means for Jesus to be our substitute. And we're blessed, Paul tells us, in union with him. Take a look at verse 14. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. I love how Paul moves to the first person plural here. Paul, the Jewish man converted to Christ, speaking to these Gentile Christians, strangers, aliens to the covenant promises. Paul says, you know what? In Christ, we receive these blessings. In Christ, we are made one. In Christ, we enjoy this blessing that was promised to Abraham for the nations. It's ours in union with Christ, a union that cannot, will not ever be severed. As I said at the very beginning of the service, not because we're able to hold on to him. We can't. But entirely because Jesus has said, I will never, never cast out the one who has come to me. How do we receive this blessing? How do we find ourselves in that place where the blessings of Mount Gerizim can be ours and the, and the blessings of Mount Ebal will have fallen on Jesus Christ? 
In John chapter 3, verse 14, Jesus says this, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That passage is from Numbers chapter 21. Again, Old Testament, gospel foreshadowing. The people had grumbled against Moses, and in their grumbling against Moses over lack of food and all this wilderness wandering, it was actually a grumbling against God. And God sent, you remember, fiery serpents among them. And they were bitten. And they cried out to Moses, Moses, intercede for us before God that we might live. And and so Moses did, and God said, I want you to fashion a bronze serpent and put it on a pole and hold it up. And whenever people look to it, once bitten, they will live. And Jesus is saying, just as the bronze serpent was held up in the wilderness so that all those bitten by the fiery serpent would live, so too I must be lifted up so that all those under the curse awaiting a punishment and a a death, an eternal death greater than a, a fiery serpent in the wilderness might live. Live. What kind of people does that gospel create? Let's look third and very quickly at that. What kind of people does the cross create? A humble people. A humble people. We know that there is nothing in us that makes us worthy before God. It's only by God's grace that we're saved. But because of that, a joyful people. There's nothing in us by which we must be saved. God did all the work for us in our place. Joy. And then, a people who obey God. Not in order to be saved by him, but because they have been saved by him. We turn around and look at, for instance, the the, the Ten Commandments, and we see there not a, a weight that crushes us, but a pathway to honor our Father. We see not a path that brings nothing but condemnation, but a law that reminds us of how much we need Jesus. And points us back to him. And out of love for Jesus and love for God, we walk that path. Not only knowing that that's the path that as people walk it, God is well pleased. But also that is the good life. The way in which God has given us, created us to live, is the way in which we find our greatest satisfaction. And I know that sounds weird. That's because of sin in us. The fact that walking in obedience to God's commands out of gratitude for his grace and love for him sounds like something like not quite as good as other things in our lives just exposes how much sin still remains in our hearts. We walk by faith, trusting that God's way for us is indeed the best of all possible ways. The pathway to blessing is through the curse-bearing cross of Christ. I love the hymn, Man of sorrows, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Flee from the death valley of relying on good works to be right with God. 
Flee from the folly of living for anything less than the blessing of God. Flee to the cross and live. Truly live. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do pray that we would be people who recognize that you have given us so much. And the one thing needful above everything else is a way for us to be saved. Lord, when we step back and just reflect for a moment on our own hearts and our own lives and the ways in which we fail even our own standards, we are reminded that unless you intercede and bring rescue, there would be no hope. And so for my friends here this morning who do not yet know you as their Savior and Lord, I pray, O God, that today would be the day that they look to the one who was lifted up on the cross and believe and find life. Not just escape from punishment and being brought from out from underneath the curse, but actually find life, eternal life, joy, everlasting. And for those of us who entirely by your grace know that, oh God, would you help us to really know it? And I ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.